me remind you, if you were not here this past Wednesday night, uh, I'm sure you may have already heard many of our folks commenting about Brother Chet Cooper, missionary to Romania. And what a thrill this dear man's message was to so many of your hearts. And in the event that you did not hear this preaching missionary, and I mean a preaching machine, uh, you'll want to get a copy of the tape of his message last Wednesday night. And uh, you can see uh, Brother Daniel after the service in our uh, control room back there. Uh, if you'd like to uh, order one of those tapes, he'd be glad to make it available to, uh, for you. And by the way, all of the messages and the services of our church are taped. And if you would like uh, any of the messages that are brought here, uh, then you uh, feel free to speak to Brother Daniel and he'll be glad to accommodate you there. This morning, if you have your Bible, turn with me to the Old Testament book of Amos. The book of Amos, chapter 4. The book of Amos, chapter 4, and we'll read beginning with verse number 6. Amos, chapter 4, and verse number 6. Amos is one of those uh, books in the Old Testament that's titled A Minor Prophet. That does not mean that their message is of minor importance. But rather, it is, he has simply given that title along with others such as Hosea, Joel, Obadiah, and so forth. They are called the minor prophets because of the brevity of their message. That is, the shortness of their message. But yet, the Word of God indeed. In Amos chapter 4, we read beginning at verse number 6. And I want us to think along these lines this morning. What is it going to take? What's it going to take? Read with me beginning at verse 6. And the verses read the message of Amos to Israel, and he says, And I also have given you a cleanness of teeth in all your cities, and want of bread in all your places. Yet have you not returned unto me, saith the Lord. And also I have withholden the rain from you when there were yet three months to the harvest. And I caused it to rain upon one city and caused it not to rain upon another city. One piece was rained upon and the piece whereupon it rained not withered. So two or three cities wandered unto one city to drink water, but they were not satisfied. Yet... Have you not returned unto me, saith the Lord? I have smitten you with blessing and mildew when your gardens and your vineyards and your fig trees and your olive trees increased. The palmer worm devoured them. Yet have you not returned unto me, saith the Lord? I have sent among you the pestilence after the manner of Egypt. Your young men have I slain with the sword and have taken away your horses. And I have made the stink of your camps to come up into your nostrils. Yet have you not returned unto me, saith the Lord. I have overthrown some of you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. And you were as a firebrand plucked out of the burning. Yet... Have you not returned unto me, saith the Lord? Therefore, thus will I do unto thee, O Israel. And because I will do this unto thee, prepare 
to meet thy God, O Israel. For lo, he that formeth the mountains and createth the wind and declareth unto man what is his thought, that maketh the morning darkness and treadeth upon the high places of the earth, the Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. I can almost hear Amos saying the words that he's mentioned some five times in the vernacular of our own speech today. And that is Amos continuously is saying, what is it going to take? Five times the prophet has said, yet you have not returned unto me, saith the Lord. The very statement itself is often heard in our own day and time. I talked only just a few hours ago with a man who is in the position to know the condition of our societies, not only in our county, but around our state as well as perhaps the nation. And that statement came from this dear man, and that is our society is in a terrible condition. What is it going to take? for our society to ever turn around and turn back to God. I hear the statement made in relation to individuals as men and women continue flaunting the will of God, ignoring the command of God, hardening their hearts against the word and the work of God. I cannot help but cry with Amos, what is it going to take? What will it take to bring men and women back to a realization of our utter and absolute need and dependence upon God? The question that Amos presents here is a question that seems to underline the whole message of this prophet. Every book, every chapter in his book seems to echo with the same pleading word, yet you have not returned unto me. Amos goes into a list of things that God has permitted, judgments that have been poured out upon the nation of the people of Israel, and yet they do not respond. They seem to be dead of soul, of spirit, of mind, and they have not returned. Now, Amos, the Bible tells us, was from a very small town south of Jerusalem, about 12 miles in fact in a little town called Tekoa, not the one over in the next county. But from the little town of Tekoa, 12 miles south of Jerusalem, also about 18 miles west of the Dead Sea. This was a man who was of the southern kingdom. You'll remember that the kingdom had been divided after Solomon's death into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom comprised of two tribes, the southern kingdom of ten of the tribes. It was that southern tribe of Israel that 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 this that this man came to and began to proclaim the message of God. He announced the message of God to the nation and the kingdom of Israel. Now, according to chapter 7 and verse 14, Amos declares that he is not a prophet. He is not even the son of a prophet. He is a herdsman, a shepherd, a keeper and tender of sheep. And no doubt that was his major part of income and sustenance. 
But the scripture also says that he was a picker of sycamore fruit. He was a fruit-picking preacher. I've been called a cotton-picking preacher, but I never picked any cotton in my life. But here's a man who was a fruit picker. And yet God laid his hand on this farm man, this farm boy, and sent him to do a giant job in declaring the message of the Lord to Israel. He was simply a man disturbed and indeed fearfully concerned with the religious and the moral climate of his day. A man, we might say, of the grassroots. He was not of a priestly family. His father was not a preacher, was not a prophet. And even as I said, he did not even announce himself nor declare himself to be a prophet, though indeed he was a prophet of God. He was a man, just an ordinary fellow. A man, we might say, of the pew. But you see, when a man of the pew gets concerned and burdened about conditions, something is bound to happen. What change needs to come in our society and in our community will not happen because a preacher stands in the pulpit. But it will be when men and women like you who are seated here become concerned and burdened in your heart about the things that are prevalent in our present world and in our society. It's always been true that when men become burdened for the lost in the community, it is very true, it is sure that sinners will be saved. It is not simply that the preacher says we need to get out and do it. It's when we do it. I was down in Somerville, Alabama last year in a revival meeting. I don't think I've been in a church in a long time that was in such a spirit of revival. You could walk in the auditorium and there was just a sense of, uh, uh, that was electrifying. The people had a burden, they had a concern. And seated with them on the pew were friends and relatives of theirs who were not saved. Some who were saved but were out of the will of God. And yet as a result of that concern, there were numerous men and women and people saved at that meeting. Not because of this preacher who stood in the pulpit. But because of men who got a burden on their heart, a tear in their eye, and a concern in their soul, and they went out to bring their friends and their neighbors to the Lord Jesus Christ. I even remember that particular meeting that after the service was over, some of the folks would try to go home and they'd begin to talk to the person who brought them and, and they'd say, listen, I can't go home in this shape spiritually. I need to get saved. I need to get right with God. And back they'd come to the church before all of us had gotten away and they'd come making things right in their heart with the Lord. What I'm saying is simply this. Amos was a grassroots man. He was a man of the pew. He was a layman. And yet God so burdened his heart that he went out to proclaim the message of God. Now perhaps there was another reason the Lord put his hand on this man. When you read over in the book of Amos, you'll find that there was a priest in this very, in the country of Israel by the name of Amaziah. He was the priest, chapter 7, verse 10. He was a priest of Bethel, and yet this fellow undoubtedly was a compromising, 
mamby-pamby, milk-toast, pussy-footing kind of a priest who would not give out God's word for fear that the people would be disturbed. And when a preacher's mouth is silent, thank God there's a layman somewhere that the Lord will stir his heart and he'll stand up and proclaim the message of God even if it is a message of divine judgment. Amaziah even told Amos when he was there, hey, we don't need your kind of preaching around here. You're prophesying against the king. Why don't you go back down south where you belong and uh, you do your preaching down there while we're okay up here in our country. And yet there are many who would like to silence the voice of those who would condemn the wickedness and the sin and the, and the idolatry that even prevails in our present day. Here then Amos comes from his home in Tekoa. He travels some 22 miles from Tekoa to the place called Bethel. Bethel, which simply means the house of God. But it was anything, it was anything other than the house of God at this time. When Jeroboam came to power, he simply said, it's too far for you folks to go to Jerusalem and worship. So what we're going to do is set up two idols, a golden calf up at Dan and the other here in Bethel. So instead of you having to go back down there, then you can just worship here. Jeroboam literally was fearful that the people would return to Rehoboam and give their allegiance to him. He was the kind of fellow who tried to manipulate people through religion. And thus, many a person is doing the same thing in this day. They're religious charlatans and renegades and con artists by the car loads and by the dozens that are all over our country trying to manipulate people by some religious jargon or religious talk. And so Jeroboam was of the same nature and stripe. And so the Lord sent Amos straight to Bethel. They were having a great feast at that particular time. He went where the crowds were. He went to where he could get his message to as many people in the shortest length of time that he possibly could. So he comes to this place. Idolatry is prevalent. The people are bowing down before the golden calves that Jeroboam has set up. So he begins his message, the feast day, and people see this weird-looking fellow come in. They can tell he's not of the society stripe. He's not of the cocktail crowd, but he walks in and he's recognizable as being a, a unique kind of a fella. And now he finds him a little podium somewhere and begins to announce his message. Now Amos wasn't a, a, a novice when it came to preaching. Uh, when he started his message, you'll find that he began denouncing the nations around Israel for their sin and their wickedness. Look, if you will, and you'll find where, where Amos declares in the opening of his message back in, well, it begins way back in chapter one uh, at verse three, and you don't have time to read all this, but you can put a check mark by verse three, verse six, also verse 11, verse 13, verse number one of chapter two, verse four, verse six, and you'll find that Amos singles out six distinct countries and they're all neighboring countries of Israel. And boy, I mean, he scalds their hide. He begins to tell them that the judgment of God is coming down on Damascus, that is Syria, coming down on Gaza, which was Philistia, coming down upon Tyre, which was Phoenicia, coming down upon Edom and Ammon and Moab. And boy, I mean, he just, he shelled the corn on his country. 
Now, can you imagine what that bunch of Israelites were doing while he is reading the title clear to that other crowd? They is patting their foot, and if they is accustomed to saying amen, they is amen in the preacher. Boy, you're right. Boy, give it to them, Amos. Tell that bunch of Syrians what they have done wrong. They invaded this country. Tell that bunch of Edom and Ammon and Moab that they're wicked, idolatrous people. And brother, they were just really excited over this boy, this young preacher. Why, they said, listen, we never heard anything like this bird. He's up here telling them just like it is and telling that crowd that's been so wicked, he's been really telling them. You know, it's easy to amen a fella as long as he's not raking leaves in your backyard. It's easy to say, boy, he's my kind, as long as he doesn't plow in your tater patch. As long as he doesn't get on your personal sin and your problem and my problem, then boy, he's number one. But you let him crawl in the house and start picking up the rug and finding dirt under it. You let him rake his hand across the mantle and find dust up there few dirty dishes in the sink and an old dirty sock slung in the corner. And you begin to have that fellow pointing that out and you'll begin to say, hey, I don't particularly like that bird. I don't like him. Uh, you know, he just, he's meddling. And that's probably what they said about this fellow. Like one preacher you've heard about years ago, the old tale. Preacher got up and he's preaching about the crowd is drinking and boy, this dear old sister just hollered, amen, amen, preaching. He got to preach about the dancing crowd and she hollered, amen, amen, preach it, preacher. Went on down the line and finally got on Garrett's snuff. And the old sister said, preacher, you done quit preaching and gone to meddling now. And that's exactly, that's exactly what these folks were doing. You're meddling. And so the Amaziah, as I just pointed out to you, said to him, won't you go back south? Go down there and uh, go back to where you came from and tell that folks what, how, how they're living and what they ought to do. So after making these folks aware that God judges men and nations because he is a holy God and the Bible distinctly says in chapter four and verse two, the Lord hath sworn by his holiness because he is holy, he will punish sin. God as a holy God hates sin and as a a holy God hating sin, he can do one of two things. He will either pardon the sinner of his sin if he comes repentant or he will punish the sinner as a result of his unrepentant heart. God is a holy God. So Amos establishes the fact that God is holy. And now he says, just as God judges Damascus and Ammon and Edom and Moab and Phoenicia, so he is going to judge Israel. Now, that's when they cut his pay. That's when they said, hey, I don't think I'll go back to hear you again. That's when they said, hey, we've had enough. Stay on that crowd, but stay off us. But you remember it, it's something similar to what Jesus said. In Luke chapter 13, look at that with me just a moment. At verse one through five of Luke 13, Jesus says this. In Luke 13, verse one, There were present at that season some that told him of the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. That, in other words, is a massacre. And Jesus answering said unto them, Suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you, no. 
But except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Of the eighteen upon whom the tire Siloam fell and slew them, think ye that they were sinners above all men that dwell in Jerusalem? I tell you nay, but except you repent, you shall all get this word likewise perish. Somehow Israel thought they were exempt from the judgment of God because they were a covenant people. They thought, hey, it doesn't make a difference what we do. Oh, we, we belong to the Lord. Like folks today said, I'm saved. It don't make a difference what I do. I'm going to tell you, it does make a difference. God will judge sin. I don't care in whose life it is. Whether it's a saved man or unsaved. Yes, thank God we'll never face the final judgment for he has taken that judgment for us. But God's word plainly says that whatever a man sows, he's going to reap that. It's going to come up again. Sin finds men out. We set in motion the judgment of God when we sin against the Lord. And that's exactly what's happened here. Yet they suppose, hey, we're all right. Nothing can happen to us. But look back in Amos, just a second, in chapter 3 at verse number 2. The Lord is speaking to Israel now, and here's what he says. Chapter 3, verse 2. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. You know what he's saying? I've been faithful to you. I haven't been unfaithful. You of all the families of the earth, I've known. Therefore, because of this, watch, I will punish you for all your iniquities. So just because a fellow saved, thinks he can go out and disobey God, rebel against God, flaunt the law of God, the word of God, brother, you better think again. The whole story is our Lord is a loving father, but because he is a loving father and because he knows us, he will chasten us if we belong to him. The writer of the Hebrews said, if you be without chastisement, whereof all of God's children partakers, if you're without it, then you're bastards and not sons. You don't even belong to him, he said. If you can get on with your meanness and your sinning and your disobedience and God never chasing you, brother, you better check up and see if you're in the family or not. So according to chapter 2 now, at verse 6 through 12, Israel was terribly guilty before God. Those verses reveal that they were full of greed. They were unjust, unjust in their dealings one with the other. They were unclean by reason of the vileness of their sin. They were profane in their lives. The first even tells us in chapter 2, verse 5, they sold the righteous for silver, greedy, covetous. God saw that and he sends Amos up to them. But here's another tragedy. In chapter four and verse one, Amos is a little crude here and he calls the women a bunch of cows. Look at chapter eight, he's using the language he learned on the farm. He's saying in verse number four, chapter four, verse one, hear this word, ye kind of nation, there in the mountains of Samaria, which oppress the poor, which crush the needy, which say to their masters, bring and let us drink. The whole thing you'll find Amos is talking to the women folk. And they're pushing their husbands with all, for all that they can in order they can have more luxury and more parties. I mean, that's the cocktail set. And they were doing everything they could to push their husbands so to get a little more money to have another party. You know, it's a sad day and a, and a dangerous day when the women of a society lose their purity and their godliness and their devotion to Christ. 
There's been many a godly, sainted woman who's prayed an ill-willed, rebellious, sinful husband back into the traces. There's been many a godly mother who's prayed many a wayward son back into the arms of the fellowship of God. But you see, when the, if the devil can corrupt womanhood, I guarantee you he's corrupted one of the last vestiges of hope and truth and standard that a country could ever have. So the devil tries to do that. And thus he came and Amos begins to read their title clear. Now in our text, Amos reminds Israel of God's numerous attempts to bring them back. But he's saying in spite of all that God has done, the sad, the disappointing words, he says, yet have you not returned. I'm reminded of the words of Isaiah in chapter one of that prophecy, verse four, five, and six. What else should I do? Why should I punish you anymore? You will grow worse and worse, Isaiah saying. Why should I levy any more judgment down upon you? You are bent on sinning. You are bent and bound for judgment. What need is there for me to chastise you anymore? And thus the Lord, through all of his workings, though severe the judgment has been, it has been tempered with mercy and love for the Lord desires to bring Israel back to himself. Consider with me in closing simply three areas in our present day, in the scope of this question that applies to us. What's it going to take? What's it going to take to save the sinner? I know there are numerous answers to that. The Campbellite says it's going to take water to save the sinner. In other words, if you're not baptized, and they say it baptized, then you're not going to be saved. Go down the creek and get all your sins washed away. I'd, if that were the truth, I'd hate to have a cow living downstream from where they baptize folks and that water wash all their sin away. She'd give clabber instead of sweet milk. And yet the old story is the Camelites say, hey, water's the answer. That's what it'll take to save the sinner. The Catholicism says it's the church. Only the father, the priest can absolve you and, and take away your sin. The church is the answer. Christian Science and Mary Baker Eddy, Glover Patterson, whatever else name she had, came along and said through Christian Science, all we need is a change of mind. We need to be more positive, not so negative in our thinking. That sin is only a condition of the mind. Sickness is a condition of the mind. Death is a condition of the mind. None of these things are real, she said. And there are a bunch of idiots who swallow that kind of philosophy. That nothing is real, just up here in your mind. I'm going to tell you, there's more to sin than just a state of mind. There's more to pain than a state of mind. A friend of mine said he'd like to get a hat pin when he got around that crowd and jab them one time and say, hey, is that in your mind or where else? The whole story is, yep, the Christian science move comes along and says, hey, all you need is a change of mind. You need to get all this stuff out of your mind. There's really no evil, no sin, no devil, no heaven, no hell. It's a state of mind. So what's it going to take to save the sinner? Christian science says, change your mind. But what does the Bible say? The Bible says it takes the blood of the Lamb of God to save the sinner. And thank God that's already been provided. The Lamb shed his blood on the cross. Hallelujah. He made possible the washing away and the forgiveness and the cleansing of all of our sin of whatever nature they are. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses from all sin. 
Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. What does it take to save the sinner? It takes what God's already provided. All the works you could do, changing your lifestyle, turning over a new leaf, joining the club of do-betters, deciding to be a little nicer to your wife and your mother-in-law, is not going to do it. It takes an old-fashioned salvation through the blood of Christ to save the sinner. Secondly, what's it going to take to stir the saint? What's it going to take to stir us up out of our lethargy? Let me ask you this. What's it going to take for us to ever get outside our front door over to our neighbor's house and talk to them about Jesus? What's it really going to take for us as members of this church who say we believe the Bible and believe the truth of the Word of God? What's it going to take to stir the saints of God to bring in folks to hear the Word of God? What's it going to take? Let me ask you this. How many more catastrophes? How many more songs? How many more sermons? How many more lost friends who die without Jesus Christ? How much of that is it going to take to stir us up? Do you know anybody of acquaintance of yours who's died in the last year or so, who died unsaved? Can we yet remain apathetic and unconcerned and unstirred and not moved in our heart when loved ones all around us die without Jesus Christ? Do you, let me ask you this. Do you and I really believe that people go to hell who reject Jesus Christ? Do we really believe that? Then if we do, that in itself ought to stir us to get up off of our haunches and hit the pavement, wear out some shoe leather, wear out some knuckles, and do our best to get men and women to know the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. How much chastisement is it going to take to stir us? God has dealt in chastisement and discipline with many a life. You've run into things. Accidents have happened. Sickness has come. Disturbance has come. Listen, God disciplines his children, but some of us are so numb of soul that we don't even recognize what Amos is saying. God is trying to get you to come back to him. All of this you have not returned. What more must I do? What greater chastisement must I bring to bring you back to Christ? A man in Stevens County several years ago, a member of the church that I first pastored, that's been over 30 years ago, well over that, 40 years. man called me one day to the hospital. He said, preacher, you need to come quick. I said, what's the trouble? He said, my baby's very sick. I said, I'll be there. When I got to the hospital, this, friend, this man met me out in the hallway. And he said, preach him a child desperately ill. And I said, we're going to pray for him. And we prayed. But then he went away and I stayed outside waiting. And after a few minutes, the man and his wife came out, tears coursing down their cheeks. And I knew before they told me what had happened, but the man said to me, preacher, the baby died. And I said, I'm so sorry. He said, preacher, I'm the sorry one. I said, what do you mean? He said, I knew three weeks ago my baby was going to die. I said, how'd you know that? Was he sick? No. But he said, the Lord been dealing with me. I've been so backslidden and away from God. I wouldn't listen to anything God is trying to tell me through any means. And he said, the greatest impression I ever had in my life came in my soul. 
Unless you come back to me, I'm going to have to deal with you severely. I'm going to take your child. Three weeks ago, when I stood by the little white casket of that little baby, I heard that man as he fell out across the casket praying, Oh God, what a fool I've been. You have tried to bring me back to yourself over and again, over and again. And I said, no. But Lord, I'm coming home. That's a pretty big price to pay. And I want to ask you this morning, what more is God going to have to do to wake some of us up? To make us realize that he means business. If we belong to him, he will not forever permit us to run from him and disobey him and, and flaunt his word and rebel against him. How many promptings of the Holy Spirit is it going to take? Listen to me. How many times have you sat in these pews? The invitation is given. The word of God's penetrated your heart. And the Holy Spirit of God said deep inside, you need to hit that altar. You need to make an open stand. You need to make an open commitment. And yet, you know what we do? We just keep putting it off, putting it, pushing him back, pushing back. How many more promptings of the Holy Spirit is it going to take to stir the saint of God? How many times have you been prompted to speak to an unsaved person? to give a gospel track, invite a person to church, and yet God's Holy Spirit seems to have had no, no influence in getting us to respond to that. Let me ask another question. How many of our children are going to have to be swallowed up by the world before we who are children of God get stirred? How many broken marriages and homes are going to have to occur before we ever get stirred up and come back to God? How many empty pews? How many wayward boys and girls? How much is it going to take? What's God going to have to do to wake us up in this country? What's it going to take in your home to wake us up that God demands first place and wants to be preeminent in our lives? What's it going to take? And I must simply close with this. Have we become so enamored that it doesn't bother us anymore what God does? Has our spirit become so hardened that even the gentle wooings of the Spirit of God go unanswered in our heart? Now, I want to tell you this. If you're a child of God, if God's been calling you through experiences in your life, you down deep inside know about it. I cannot tell you that, but you know how many times sleepless nights, misery, emptiness, defeat, conquered, tramped on by the world, flesh, sins, and God through it all is saying, yet you've not returned to me. He sent famine to Israel, yet they wouldn't come to it. He sent drought, they wouldn't come to it. He even let wars come and the dead bodies lay in the camps and the stink of the camps came up in their nostrils. And the Lord said, yet you haven't come. Folks, today my appeal to you is this. Don't wait till God has to increase the severity of his dealings with you before you return, before you come home. What's it going to take to save the sinner? 
What's it going to take to stir the saint? God help us to hear his voice. Let's pray together. Father, we stand today not simply as a preacher in the pulpit, but we stand as your messenger. And we believe you're holding out your hand to some and maybe many in our audience. Time and again, we have sat in this church, heard thy word, Holy Ghost of God stirred us, but it had moved us. Now, Lord, you know what we need. Some of us have been raking sin under the carpet, hiding it in the closet, ignoring it. And yet, Lord, there's no place we can hide our sin and rebellion from thee. Dear Lord, we know you love us. And we hear those final sobering words that the Lord said through Amos. Therefore, because you hadn't returned, prepare to meet thy God. And Lord, we pray that you'll help us today to hear in that not so much a call that's harsh, but a loving warning that you will not let us as your children keep sticking our noses up at you and turning our backs on you and let us get by forever. We pray that you will help us. If there's someone here today that's not saved, may they come to Jesus, knowing that the only means of saving the sinner is through faith in the Lord Jesus. And Lord, for any child of God that you may have spoken to, you dealt with us. Even, Lord, we consider sometimes little things to be so insignificant. We don't want to bother. And yet, Lord, it's not insignificant if it bothers us. It's come to mind. I pray that you'll just move on us now. Do whatever pleases you. Stir the hearts. May we be open and responsive to your word. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to stand with us. Turn with us in, our, in your songbook to number 309. I've wandered far away from God. Now I'm coming home. The paths of sin too long I've trod. Now listen. No one could ever love us like he loves us. But I want to tell you something. Though God loves you, he'll not put up with our continued, constant rebellion against him. He won't do it. Look back in your life. Have you, have you seen those touches of God around? Have you heard from them? God said, come on back. You've drifted a little too far. Come on back, return. I pray the day if God's talking to your heart, you need to come. If you're a believer, you're saved. Maybe the Lord's touched your heart and there's something you need to square up with him. I want you to come and bow at this altar and tell the Lord about it. If you're here and you're unsaved, you need to get right with God, get saved. Come and give me a hand. Maybe you need to unite with our church with promise of letter, statement, or baptism. You come, tell us your desire. While we sing on the first stanza, come on right now, I'll meet you here. I Turn it backward. Let him have. Return. To
burned. What about it? God talk to you. Come on. Oh, listen. Are you sensitive? How long's it been since you sensed God talking to you? Touching your heart. Come with you. Between you and God. Between you and God. Come, you know it, I don't. Come on, come on. You've seen his hand touching your life, your family, your job. Come on, come on. Do it now, do it now. before he sing the closing stanza I'll read you again the words of Isaiah after a while the Lord says I've done enough don't need me dealing with you anymore I'm just going to bring you on home it's going to take you on home 1 John chapter 5 says there is a sin unto death and I do not say that you pray for it if you see your brother sin a sin which is not unto death I say pray for him and God will forgive him, restore him. But I want to tell you something. We, we think God's some kind of play toy. We got an idea we can just do God any old way. It doesn't make a difference. Lay out on God, ignore him, neglect him, forsake him. Listen, we're talking about a living God. We're talking about a God that the Bible says it's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of a living God. I want you to listen carefully. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a seed of evildoers, children that are corruptors. They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked the Holy One of Israel unto anger. They are gone away backward. Listen to this. Why should you be stricken anymore? You will... Revolt more and more. The head, the whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot, even of the head, there is no soundness in it but wounds, bruises, putrefying sores. They have not been closed, neither bound up, neither mollified with ointment. The thought is, God's saying, why should I, why should I chasten you anymore? You're going to do the same thing you've been at. So what I'm going to do, I'm telling you like Amos, prepare to meet God. Prepare to meet him. May God give us a soberness today in our soul to realize 
that we have to do with a living God. Let's sing the last stanza. Our heads are bowed, please. You know it. Carl will lead us. I want to sing one more stanza. If God's talked to your heart, now's the time to do something about it. Come on while we sing the last stanza. My soul is sick. My heart is Sing it out, sing it out. Coming home, coming home. Never more to roam. Open wide my arms of love. we're going to go. I want you to listen carefully. I read from Romans 1 verse 28. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, their mind, listen to this, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. You see, if a man or a woman said, hey, God, I don't, I'm not going to think about you. I don't care what you told me about. The danger is God turned you over to a reprobate, a mind not acceptable, a castaway. Let's wake up and listen to God. He loves us. That's reason he talks to us like he does. He is plenteous in mercy, willing, gracious, ready to forgive, but we have to come and claim that forgiveness from him. Well, 